Welcome back to Informed and Inflamed, where we seek to inform our minds with truth in order to inflame our hearts with love for God and neighbor. I'm Brad Owens, and I'm excited that you're joining me today for another episode. Well, thanks for coming back for part two of this parenting and sexuality seminar that I did at our church recently, and we'll just jump right back in. So if God designed it, then God also gets to define it. And this applies to anything, but has particular relevance for issues of marriage and sexuality. But I think it's also helpful to remember that not only does God's authority as the Creator stand behind His design for sex and marriage, but also His goodness. And I think it's important for us as Christians to think through ways to highlight God's goodness when it comes to matters of sexuality. Sam Alberry, in his book, Is God Anti-Gay?, does a good job of just showing that sex designed by God is meant to bind a husband and his wife together. Sex has great power to do that within the marriage relationship. And to illustrate this, he talks about a post-it note. And we all know we've all used post-it notes. And when we use a post-it note, the first time we use it, it's nice and sticky. It sticks to the surface well. But the more that we take that post-it note and apply it to many different surfaces, it loses its sticky power. And so he uses that as a simple illustration to show how sex is meant to bind one person together with another, a man with his wife. And when sex is taken out of that proper context, its power is, there's power still there, but it's not being used in the way that it's meant to be used in binding a man together with his wife, bringing husband and wife together over and over again within the marriage relationship. But Genesis 1 and 2 give us the pattern for these things, for marriage, for sexual intimacy, gender, and so many other things like work, rest, worship. It really is hard to overstate the significance of Genesis 1 and 2. There's just so much there. And at a recent Presbytery meeting, a fellow pastor in the area, he presented on uh, the PCA report on human sexuality that recently came out, but he goes to Genesis 1 and 2 and talks about these three heart cries that God has put within every single individual, and those three heart cries are identity, intimacy, and influence. And he went in to talk about how we we all have these three questions rolling around in our hearts all the time. Identity, the question is, who am I? Intimacy, the question is, am I loved? And influence, the question is, why am I here? What am I to do? What is my purpose? And Genesis 1 and 2 answer all of those questions. For identity, the answer is that we are made in the image of God. We are made to have a relationship with Him and to resemble Him, to be His representatives on earth. And then God also makes us male and female, Genesis 1.27. And Genesis 1 and 2 also answer the intimacy question of, am I loved? First and foremost, we learn that God created to have a relationship with us. He made us specifically for fellowship with Himself. So there's this vertical intimacy that we are to experience in relationship with the Lord, with our Creator. But there's also 
horizontal intimacy. God designed marriage to be a horizontal intimacy between a man and his wife. And from marriage comes the family, intimacy between parent and child. And then, of course, as a human race multiplied, there were there was friendship, which is also a big part of marriage and family life, but friendship between individuals, friendship type of intimacy that can be experienced there. And lastly, influence. What am I here for? And we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that we are here to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. So, Again, it's Genesis 1 and 2 are so foundational for our understanding of these matters. That's where we need to begin because the pattern is established in Genesis 1 and 2. And everything else that Scripture says elaborates on that original pattern that's established in these opening chapters of the Bible. But when we think about the church and the world, perhaps it's helpful to think of what we could call the unlimited view of sexuality versus the limited or the restricted view of sexuality given to us in the Bible. In the eyes of the world, the biblical sexual ethic is very restrictive. And it's important for us to recognize, though, that everyone draws the line somewhere. Even our secular friends or non-Christian friends that we may have are going to draw the line somewhere around sexuality. Most of the time, it's around consent Most everyone agrees that consent is needed between two people for sexual activity to be okay, and age is important. We recognize that someone needs to be of a certain age to be able to give credible consent. So I think we can use this in relationships with non-Christians as a point of contact to say, hey, we all draw the line somewhere, but the question is, what standard do we use to identify where that line ought to be drawn? We believe that it's Scripture, God's revelation of Himself and of His will for our lives. But we need to hold the truth and the beauty and the goodness of God's design together in our presentation of God's ways. I think that's very important as well. And it is entirely appropriate and desperately needed that we put up guardrails around things that are incredibly powerful and precious. We put boundaries around things that have great power because we recognize that along with power comes the potential for harm. One very simple way I was reminded of this in just everyday life as a father was in the Owens household, we like to make smoothies sometimes. The girls get super excited to have a smoothie. They want to pull up a chair and help me get all the ingredients out, put them in the blender. And before we had kids, we still made smoothies and I would pull down the blender, plug it in, get all the ingredients out, and get going on making a good smoothie. But now, with little kids, I'm very mindful when I pull that blender down, I don't plug it in immediately because I know how dangerous that could be with the girls pulling up a chair, wanting to help out, and how easy it would be for them to hit a button and make it start. So we get all the ingredients out, we put them all in, and I wait till the very end to plug it in and then hit the button and get the smoothie going. Um, But that's just a very simple, ordinary way that I take extra precaution because the blender has power. And because it has power, it can harm people. And especially with little toddlers and young kids, uh, there's just the opportunity there for something to go wrong. But we put restrictions on things that are powerful, and we recognize this in all sorts of ways in life. And we also put restrictions on things that have great value, that are precious to us. 
In the book, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With?, Sam Alberry talks about just comparing getting having an old car that you don't care what happens to it because you're just trying to get as much as you can out of it and having a new car. And we recently went through this about a year ago. We had Anna's old car, old 04 Honda Element. I think it had close to 240,000 miles on it. And we were literally just trying to run that thing into the ground to get as much as we could out of it. But we ate in it. We didn't really care what happened to the inside. Uh, it was just an old car. But then we got a van, and we cared a lot. I remember after we picked it up on the drive home, we started talking about, hey, what are we gonna? What rules are we gonna establish for the van? And we talked about not letting the girls have snack in the car, not eating in the car, because we this van had a lot more value than our old car. We wanted to take care of it. So again, in all sorts of ways in life, we recognize things that are powerful and things that are precious are to have extra restrictions on them, that that's necessary and needed oftentimes. And the reason God puts restrictions on sex is both because it is so powerful and because it is precious. And so I think thinking through ways that we can communicate the goodness of God's design to the world is really important. And I found that Sam Albury did that really well in one of his recent books, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? Okay, so now I want to spend a good bit of time walking through this grace-driven strategy in pursuing sexual holiness. This comes from John Piper, his Anthem strategy. Anthem is an acronym. We'll go through each letter and talk about what each one means. But in Mama Bear Apologetics, just to get at the seriousness of this problem, how widespread it is of pornography and lust. This is what Hillary Morgan Ferrer says about just the prevalence of pornography. So she says, by the time our boys reach fifth grade, 90% of them will have been exposed to pornography, with the low ball average age of first exposure being eight years old. That is incredible and just speaks to the the seriousness of this problem. And this is something that affects girls too. She goes on to say, by the time our girls reach age 18 years old, 60% of them will have been exposed to pornography themselves. And for the lucky 40% who haven't, more than likely they're dating guys who have or are regularly consuming it themselves. So this is a big problem, not just out there in the world, but in the church And it's harder than ever to navigate as a parent because there's streaming devices, computers, smartphones. The access to pornography is easier to get to than it ever has been. And so that creates a challenge for us as parents and as we seek to love and disciple our children, especially as they grow older. And part of my story is I was exposed to pornography before I came to know the Lord at 15 years old. And so after I came to know the Lord, it continued to be an issue for me for several years. But this strategy that John Piper walks through is so helpful. And memorizing Scripture, praying over it, really battling moments of temptation with God's Word is what has brought tremendous victory to my own life in this area. And so I also just want people to believe, and especially doing youth ministry, for students to believe, if they're caught in this sin, that they can be set free using God's Word by the power of the Spirit 
sin can lose its grip over our hearts. And of course, it's important to remember that if we are to experience any growth whatsoever, it does require our effort, but it is always the Lord who's behind any bit of growth that we experience. In John 15, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So this has to be done in dependence on God with his grace and his help. Well, let's walk through it now. So this is anthem, and A stands for avoid as much as possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. So A is avoid. A couple scriptures that go along with this. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace together with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there we have it, the call to flee the evil desires of youth, to avoid situations that are going to cause us temptation. And we can't avoid everything, but as much as we're able to, to avoid those situations that are going to cause trouble for us. And I love how 2 Timothy 2.22 also highlights that we do this together with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We need each other. We need Christian community to overcome any sin. But this one in particular, we need to have those safe places where we can confess when we fail, ask for prayer, get help and encouragement from other believers. So it's really important to walk through any sin struggle, really, with other believers. So important. Romans 13 verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So again, the idea here is in order to make no provision for the flesh, we avoid those situations that give us great difficulty. I was reading a little book to my daughters uh, the other day. We've been working our way through Theology, a book by Marty Machowski. And in one of the chapters, he said, little sins never stay small. And I thought that was so helpful because we're all tempted to rationalize or make excuses for certain sins, and this can be one of them. And so we need to, we might rationalize it by thinking it doesn't hurt anybody, but that's not true. It does a great deal of damage to our own souls. And so we need to remember little sins never stay small. God wants us to take the smallest of sins very seriously because every sin, no matter how small it seems, is a big deal. So that's A, avoid. N is no. Say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. And John Piper says he includes that phrase within five seconds because it is critical that as soon as we start to experience temptation, we immediately start to resist it as soon as it starts. Because the longer we linger, the longer we hesitate, the more power it has in our hearts. So we need to say no quickly. In Titus 2, 11 and 12 is a great place in Scripture where we see this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us or it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So we are to say no quickly. And John Owen, he said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Great quote that communicates the seriousness of this battle God calls us to against our sin. So that's N, and T is turn. Turn the mind forcefully toward Christ as a superior satisfaction. One verse that helped me tremendously as a young man battling these temptations was Psalm 119, verse 37. And it says, 
Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. I remember praying over that over and over and over again. God, help me believe there's life, joyful, abundant life in your ways, not in the ways of the world and not in my own sinful ways. And so Lord, turn my eyes away from things that you have forbidden for my good and help me trust you as I seek to walk in your ways. John Piper also says, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long-term than to gain a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. So that happens in salvation. When we are born again, when the old heart of stone is taken out and a heart of flesh is put in, we are given a new taste for righteousness, for obedience to the Lord. And sin doesn't taste the same like it used to. Sam Albury talks about how getting at this idea of our taste changing, he says it's like drinking a sip of orange juice after brushing your teeth. After your mouth has been all cleaned out, orange juice doesn't taste so good anymore. So once our souls have undergone this washing by the power of the Spirit, sin doesn't taste like it used to. It's not as enjoyable. Of course, it brings temporary pleasure, but there's this. it leaves us empty and broken inside. So there's a new taste put within us. G.K. Chesterton, he said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. So his what he was getting at there is that we turn to other things to seek to satisfy these deep longings and cravings that God has put within us for himself, but we turn to other things to give us what only God can give. And so it's helpful to understand that as well as we turn to pornography or anything else to seek to feel and satisfy those desires in our hearts that God's put there for himself. And so we're meant to turn to him for the satisfaction of those desires, not to things that he has forbidden because they're not good for us. So H is hold, hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other things out. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 4 is a beautiful place in Scripture where this idea is found. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So in these verses, we are given a grace-driven strategy for how to think in our minds and fix our hearts on Jesus to overcome temptation. It says we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We are to consider him and all that he went through to look back to the cross and what Jesus did to rescue us from our sins so that we won't grow weary and lose heart. So there's strength to be gained from looking back to the cross to see all that God has done for us. The indicatives of Scripture, what God has done for us, are meant to fuel our efforts to obey the imperatives, what we are called to do. And E is enjoy a superior satisfaction. Just a couple verses. Uh, Psalm 90 verse 14 is one that we love in our house. We usually say this every morning. 
or the morning prayers over cereal, good old bowl of Cheerios most of the time. But lately it's been Count Chocula because that stuff was on sale and we bought a ton of it. <laughs> Count Chocula is awesome. But Psalm 90 verse 14 says, Satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And Psalm 16 verse 11, same sort of idea. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the last letter M is move on. Move on into a useful activity away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. So if we do find ourselves in a moment of temptation, we are to resist it, use the Word of God as our weapon in, and in prayer, and then move on. Seek to remove ourselves from any situations that may be tempting us. And Proverbs 5 verse 8 says, Keep your way far from her, in context, talking about the forbidden woman, and it says, and do not go near the door of her house. So we are to keep our distance from things that are going to tempt us and make it difficult for us to walk in sexual faithfulness. One thing that I love so much about this strategy is that the Word of God really is highlighted and emphasized, and we understand that it is our greatest weapon in our battle against sin. It is so important that we believe that and trust that God's Word has the power to change and transform our hearts and to set us free from the sins that we struggle with. It's not an overnight transformation. Oftentimes, sometimes it is for certain people, but most of the time it's a long, slow, gradual growth that happens as we dig into God's Word, as we memorize it and pray over it and really seek to dig deep into the Scriptures to find strength and nourishment for our souls. Now, Charles Spurgeon, he said that backsliding begins with dusty Bibles. And he said it another way too. He says, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. So we need to believe that God's Word really is the food for our souls that we need to give us strength and power to resist the temptations that we face. There's this awesome quote from the Willow Bank Report, which is a document that's about the relationship between Christianity and culture. But this is just about the way that God changes us and what happens in our hearts when we are born again. It says, Jesus Christ insists on dislodging from the center of our world whatever idol previously reigned there and occupying the throne himself. This is the radical change of allegiance which constitutes conversion, or at least its beginning. And so I love these next two lines. Then once Christ has taken his rightful place, everything else starts shifting. The shockwaves flow from the center to the circumference. I just love how this gets at the transformation of heart that we experience when we first trust in Jesus and that that transformation is to, like a ripple effect, work its way out into every bit of our lives. And so we, we need that. We want to understand from Scripture what it looks like for the lordship and kingship of Jesus to be a part of every aspect of our lives. And we need God's help for this. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are very needy. We desperately need God's help. But we can approach His throne with confidence because of what Jesus has done. Not at all because of our worthiness, because we're not worthy, or of our goodness, because no matter 
how much we try, we will always fall short of God's perfect standard. That's why Jesus had to come to rescue us from our sins, to die the death we deserve to die, and to live the perfect life that we have failed to live every single day. But whatever our sexual history looks like, there is forgiveness and grace to be found in Jesus. And whatever abuse we've endured at the hands of others, there's also healing and wholeness to be found in Jesus. But thinking about parenting again, in Mama Bear Apologetics, the author says, experiencing God's freedom from our sexual past is key to being able to talk to our kids about sex in a healthy way. So this whole task of parenting when it comes to issues of sexuality calls us to further growth as parents. And again, we want to be able to create a safe place for our kids to process, to discuss questions that they have, doubts they may have, to confess their sins. And we need to respond with grace and patience and compassion. And whether we have experienced significant spiritual growth in this area or hardly any at all, our kids need us to teach them God's ways, pointing them back to God's Word as the highest authority in their lives. The goodness of God's ways need to be taught through our instruction and also caught through the example that we set. We can't give away to our kids what we don't possess. If we want to lead our children into a vibrant and deep relationship with God, we've got to be pursuing that ourselves first. Only then are we going to be able to lead them into it along with us. And like I've told our youth students several times, that doubts themselves aren't a problem. We don't need to be afraid to ask questions or to wrestle with what Scripture says or things we hear from the culture, but it's what we do with our doubts that matter most. Throughout my own life, I think I have a pretty skeptical bent sometimes and can ask tough questions. And early on in my Christian life, I wondered, like, how can I know for sure that the Bible is trustworthy and this is really what I ought to bank my life on? And throughout the years, asking several questions like that, digging into Scripture and other good books— it has done nothing but solidify my confidence in the trustworthiness of God's Word. So again, it's what we do with our doubts that matter. If we will dig into Scripture to take those questions to the Lord in prayer and do the digging that's needed to find the answers, I think our faith will be strengthened and bolstered in God's Word. But to any of you listening who are struggling with sexual sin of any kind, I just want to encourage you to talk to someone about it if you're not already. We are all broken and in need of God's gracious help, and we need each other as we seek to untangle ourselves from the grip of sin. And most importantly, take your struggles to the one who lived and died for you to rescue you from your sins. He alone is the one who is able to break sin's power over us and to show us the way to walk in freedom from sin. Although sin will always be a part of our experience this side of heaven, substantial victory is possible because of the salvation Christ has achieved for us and the Holy Spirit's presence in us. If we are in Christ, the penalty for sin has been paid, the power of sin is broken, and the Holy Spirit can help us emerge out of the pit we find ourselves in. Because of God's grace, there is hope for each one of us, no matter how deeply ensnared we may be in the clutches of our sinful natures. And we need to believe that, that God's grace can transform our situation and our hearts.
But that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me again today. And I look forward to connecting with you again next time.